Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Ungersargon. And this is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So today we are bringing on two very special guests, Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things Magazine and nationally syndicated radio host Michael Medved, to debate the future of the Republican Party and the conservative movement and all of that good stuff. Bob, yeah, I guess I'm more of an insider to this debate. You're a bit more of an, of, of an outsider, a, sym- a sympathetic at times outsider, I might say. Um, <laughs> what are your kind of uh, 35,000 foot view thoughts on kind of uh, the, the way this conversation has been unfolding and I guess will be unfolding? Well, I think any disaffected or dissatisfied liberal is very, very uh, uh, tightly watching what's going on on the right among our friends, the Republicans, to see if there's anything there that that might tempt us away. So uh, I'm very, very invested in this conversation. Um, I'm super excited to hear these two guys go at it because I understand from, you know, looking at the left and the liberals and how contentious those fights are that sometimes when you're having an intra-party debate, it's even more contentious. So I'm excited for this one, Josh. Yeah, I feel almost um, almost slightly triggered hosting, moderating a discussion that I have already spent and will continue to spend so much ink uh, giving my own thoughts on. Um, let's take it to a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to listen to a thrilling debate, I would imagine, on the future of the Republican Party and conservatism in America in general between Rusty Reno and Michael Medved. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. We'll catch you on the other side. Welcome back to The Debate, a new podcast from Newsweek. Today we have two very special guests to debate a topic that could not possibly be timelier, could also not be near and dear to my own heart and my own professional work. Badia, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we're going to hear from right now? We could not be more thrilled to have Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things with us, and Michael Medved, a conservative radio host. You both are so central to your corners of this debate, and we are so excited to have you here to talk to each other about this. Welcome to the debate. Thank you. Great to be with you. Yeah, so thank you both just so, so very much. I've really actually been looking forward to this one quite a bit. So let's kick it off here, um, uh, you know, with some kind of just kind of a opening statement. So, I mean, obviously, there's just been a, an incredible amount of intellectual, political policy ferment uh, ever since the 2016 Republican presidential primaries. It's kind of only, I think, escalated uh, over the past few months since January 6th in particular. So, um, you know, Rusty, we, we can start with you and then, Michael, you can go after that. Why don't you kind of just give us kind of your your broader lay of the land, so to speak, as to where kind of the, um, you know, conservative movement and the Republican Party has been, where it is now and where it ought to go. In the 1980s, when Reagan was elected, in 1980, when he was elected president of the United States, the country I voted for him in 1980, uh, first presidential candidate I voted for um, after turning 18 in 1978, the country suffered from what I would call overconsolidation. We had a stagnant economy um, uh, and, and the recipe was to open up uh, and let the creative juices flow. And we really reaped uh, benefits from that. But by the time we got to 2016, uh, the country suffered from what I would say an overly um, fluid and globalized economy. And so the What's needed today is a reconsolidation uh, so that middle class, high school educated Americans can flourish uh, in, in our society. And that has a social dimension as well as an economic dimension. So I think we're in a season of reconsolidation. And I think that the Republican Party needs to 
lead the way in a uh, free market friendly approach to reconsolidating the economy and also our culture more broadly so that we re-regulate aspects of our culture so, so that ordinary people can can do well in our society. And, and Michael, by contrast, you've obviously established yourself as a you know consistent and at, and at times um, you know quite acerbic critic of former President Trump. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm curious if you can kind of just kind of unpack that for us and kind of just explain how much of it is about the man, how much of it is about this kind of more uh, substantive populist nationalist policy agenda and so forth. I think none of it is about the substantive populist agenda at all. It is all about the man, both positive and negative. And again, I, I do something that is masochistic and <laughs> I think profoundly unusual, which is I sit and listen to all of those Castro-esque, uh, long rambling speeches at his rallies. And I just listen to the one in Wellington, Ohio. And he has nothing to say on policy. He, he just doesn't. And I, I don't think that uh, you could say that he was elected because of his trade policy with China. This didn't inspire people. And by the way, I, I also, uh, like R.R., uh, uh, I, I uh, was well, the first Republican that I ever voted for for president was uh, Ronald Reagan. I was very proud to do that. And that was also partially about the man. It wasn't uh, necessarily about people's different understandings of uh, economic opportunities. Um, but th the difficulty that I have with President Trump, and I was just thinking about this, is the whole idea of the insistence that he won the election. Uh, I, I was actually thinking about writing something for Newsweek about this. I think this may single-handedly revive the historical reputation of Al Gore. Uh, <laughs> because the, the destructiveness to the country, to the Republican Party, to anyone who doesn't go along with this, I, I don't know if anybody else here watched his, um, his harangue la uh, on Saturday night in Wellington, Ohio, but his attack on Tony Gonzalez, who is a second-term congressman who won fairly big in a, in a district that's going to be tougher in Ohio this time. He's already announced that he's going to be campaigning against Lisa Murkowski. He's, of course, going to be campaigning against Liz Cheney. He's expected to a campaign against uh, John Katko and, and, and all of the other Republicans who are less than uh, utterly obeisant to, to President Trump as an individual. And frankly, I think he's a malignancy that uh, threatens the survival of the party. Because if we, we do poorly in, in this midterm election, contrary to everyone's expectations, because of these primary fights, and there are going to be a lot of them, and because of figures like President Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and others, he honored Marjorie Taylor Greene in Wellington, Ohio, uh, this is not a party that that this Reaganite recognizes and, and wants to recognize. So <laughs> I, I, I don't see a future for the party unless uh, President Trump uh, gives up his presidential ambitions. So, Rusty, wh why don't you respond, first of all, to this question about 
So to what extent is the question about the future of the GOP a question about Trump? I mean, do you accept that it is a question about him? Or do you think that that is not actually the central question of the future of the GOP? Well, the, he's obviously hugely important electorally, politically, in terms of getting people to vote. He's very good at getting people to vote for him, and he's very good at getting people to vote against him. So obviously, he remains an important figure. But I think there's a general realignment in the GOP. And so, you know, I think that Trump will go down in the history books as changing, changing the perspective of our elite with respect to China. Uh, everybody, I mean, the Obama administration was already pivot to China, pivot to China, pivot to Asia, et cetera, but it didn't really happen. And Trump has forced the issue, and you see the Biden administration hasn't really changed the, the more um, aggressive measures that his administration put in place with respect to China. So I would chalk that up. And then immigration and build the wall and all that sort of thing. And again, I think a lot of us knew we had a problem here, but we didn't really want to face it. And I think he has succeeded in energizing voters in such a way that our political leadership has to actually address uh, the question of illegal immigration. And I think that, that political issue is not going to go away until it's addressed in a, in a sensible way. And then thirdly, questioning, he, he, I remember in 2016, questioning NATO and all that sort of thing, classic Trumpian hyperbole. But I do think that there is a broad agreement um, on on the right that uh, we have to we have to reassess our imperial overreach in the post 9/11 um, context. So I think in those three areas: immigration, uh, global, economic globalization, which is basically a synonym for China, and uh, the question about how American power should be protected globally that he has um, reset or realigned or, or refocused um, discussions and debates on the right. And so if you look at um, the, the most ambitious uh, uh, candidates, national candidates in the Republican Party, um, aside from Nikki Haley, we have DeSantis, uh, Rubio, and Josh Hawley is obviously very ambitious, and Mike Pompeo, they all fall into roughly what I would call um, the Trumpian populist orientation with lots of differences in details and certainly differences in terms of personality. But, um, but I, I, I think he has succeeded in reorienting the Republican Party because of his electoral success and his ability to move tens of millions of people. Right. So, Michael, this is really a big question for you as well. I've seen you push back, I think honorably, on the sort of Hillary Clinton basket of deplorables formulation, the idea that you would have to be a racist to vote for Trump, that that's the only reason people voted for him. But from your point of view, what is the thing about him? If it's not his policy when it comes to China, what did motivate so many people to come out for him? And from your point of view, how should that impact the future of, of the conservative movement and the GOP? Let me respond to what you're asking, Bhatia, and, and also respond to what R.R. just said, which is that the, none of these issues about reorienting toward China or a sensible immigration reform, uh, President Trump, when he spoke about immigration reform during uh, his 
first year during 2017, uh, it was very similar to the uh, to the Bush, uh, both of the Bush immigration reform mm -hmm. programs. It, it wasn't that different. And uh, the truth of the matter, he doesn't talk about it. What he talks about is the giant steal, is the big lie. And the, the problem I have with talking about the Republican Party, until we can clear that away, until we can clear away the, the idea that our entire electoral system is corrupt, if President Trump is right in what he continues to say, and he says it every chance he gets, which is that an election was stolen, uh, an election was dishonest, the wrong person was designated the winner, if, if that is even vaguely true, then no other issue matters as much as fixing our electoral system. And by the way, Republicans have been behaving as if that was the case. I can't think of any dumber national strategy than what people are doing in Texas and in Florida and in Georgia and across the country, trying in, in really these niggling changes of electoral regulation after an election, which according to every reliable bit of evidence was, was actually in the midst of a pandemic, carried off with uh, record turnouts and high participation and high spirits on both sides and uh, was accurately counted. And the, the difficulty that I have is the underlying populism isn't really about China and it isn't really about whether what is the path to legalization of 11 million people who are living here without documentation. The real question of the populism is whether you believe that Washington all is a giant swamp, that it needs to be swept clean, that the number one target right now should not be uh, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. It should be Liz Cheney and Tony Gonzalez and John Katko and Lisa Murkowski and uh, other internal Republicans. That, that to me is the biggest threat to the Republican Party is the, um, the, the kind of bitterness and the kind of struggle and death struggle that, that Trump is talking about isn't uh, about moderates and conservatives or against populists versus elitists. It's the shirts and the skins. It's people who uh, adore President Trump and believe he's the greatest president we've ever had, or those of us who, who believe he, he is the worst president we've ever had. And by the way, I, I mentioned that because I just thought of something, which I, I was trying to remember if you can think of, and I challenge anybody here to, to do that, think of any president who has ever done something un, unquestionably as wrong as challenging the election validity and, and all of the undermining of the electoral, electoral process and, and then rallying the people on January 6th to come up to the Capitol building. Now, you could say, of course, that Nixon, in uh, trying to cover up the Watergate uh, break-in, was doing something comparably horrible. But those two really are alone, because even Franklin Pierce, who was uh, drunk and awful and pro-slavery, and uh, if I, I think Harding gets a, a bad rap, uh, you, you can mention other things, but in terms of a singular, uh, unforgivable, indefensible, 
position. I I don't uh, I don't think that there's any other president in the running. Michael, l- l- let me push back just a little bit, and then Rusty, I'm going to throw it over to you. Um, I I don't want to push back on the Trump election stuff. I, I personally have no particular interest in in, in in litigating like the phone call to <laughs> Brad Raffensperger in Georgia or anything of that nature. But I, I I think there's a slight overstep here as far as conflating kind of the man and. The substance, and I, I, I'd be curious how you respond, basically, to the following. Now, I, I was also a Trump skeptic and a pretty severe Trump skeptic, actually, in retrospect, in 2016. Um, but even at that time, I kind of recognized that there was one issue, and Rusty's flagged this issue numerous times already now, that Trump was really consistent on going back at least to kind of his, you know, New York tabloid days in the 1980s, arguably as far back really as the ni- late 1970s. It was kind of the trade globalization issues, especially vis-a-vis China. I mean, he was a staunch um, skeptic of NATO in the early 90s when he was palling around, you know, with Pat Buchanan's reform party. Um, So is there anything there substantively that you would concede that he has tapped into, kind of holding aside all the toxicity of the election, uh, you know, litigation and uh, allegations of fraud and all of that? Is there anything substantively that he has truly tapped into, you think? It's it's a, a terrific question and and good for you and no, <laughs> because I think that we were in in the midst of a China pivot as I I think uh, Rusty uh, alluded to earlier, uh, Obama was talking about a tilt to the Pacific and uh, and and again and and Trump's position on trade with China and negotiating trade deals and with his uh, claims that he has this fast and wonderful friendship with people like Kim Jong-un and, uh, and, and Xi Jinping, um, it, it doesn't seem to me that, that what you're talking about now, I'm, I'm, I'm having Mike Pompeo's coming on my radio show on uh, this week. And uh, I'm going to ask him uh, the same thing. What does he believe was the great achievement of the Trump administration uh, in terms of reorienting China policy? And uh, uh, I think it's, it's tough to, to see uh, a, um, a tremendous success in this regard. Certainly the situation in Hong Kong. I mean, what about our relationship with China is encouraging right now? <laughs> but but Michael, what what motivated his voters then? It seems to, what it, I believe. Go, you you first, Rusty. The uh, I want to go back to the stolen election. Trump's Trump's success politically is he identified the fact that there is a growing sense of betrayal in a large sector of the American population. They feel betrayed by the people who run the country. They feel economically betrayed. Uh, they feel culturally betrayed. And the stolen election motif uh, fits into the betrayal theme. Uh, and I think Trump, in 2016, I remember in his campaign speeches, he would say, our country's being run by very stupid people. And I remember first hearing that thing, that is so absurd and ridiculous. But then I thought about it more, and I thought, well, actually, if you live in Steubenville, Ohio, you would say either the people who run the country are stupid or they really are actively hostile to my interests. And I think there are tens of millions of people who have felt, I mean, an opioid crisis, we have close to 100,000 people in the United States per year die of opioid overdose. 
Uh, we've got a colossal catastrophe in terms of marriage and working class Americans. Uh, we've got the deindustrialization of the country. And meanwhile, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Wall Street have done fabulously well. And so you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be able to look up from rural Missouri and say, well, why is it that things always work out for those guys, but never work out for us? And Trump, you know, you could say that he cynically uh, exploits this sense of betrayal, but I think it's extremely naive and dangerous politically in the long term to ignore the fact that tens of millions of people feel betrayed. And I think that his harping on the stolen election is his intuitive sense as a politician that this is the most efficient way to tap in to people's sense of betrayal and to stoke their sense of betrayal. Just as the, uh, the left, the Democratic Party stokes people's sense, feeling of exclusion. And you have two kinds of angers in our society that are now rising. An anger against exclusion, so the country's racist, or an anger, anger about betrayal. The country's run by people who cheat and lie and, and so on and so forth. But Rusty, and so, so let, me, let me just push back on that. Ignoring it will not make the problem go away. So, so I, I like how you phrased that—that that he was exploiting it politically. I, I think I think that's accurate. Um, but can you, from where you're sitting, do you condemn that? I mean, he could have both exploited something that existed that deserves to be recognized, right? The alienation these people feel, but also have done something that Michael pointed out, which has destabilized our democracy in a way that deserves condemnation. Do you agree? Do you feel that what that this harping on it? deserves to be condemned as something that's dangerous for America. No, I think that, uh, look, he, uh, he, he challenged the election rhetorically and in the courts. Uh, meanwhile, people on the left want to add justices to the Supreme Court, two new states, federalize electoral laws, effectively undergo a covert change of our Constitution. And so the notion that the greatest threat to our constitutional system is a rabble-rousing populist who gives speeches in Ohio versus a very powerful people, um, billionaires uh, who are behind all kinds of radical things on the left. I think it's just a misconception of where the real threat is. And I, I mean, the electoral laws, were, this election was conducted under the biggest change in electoral laws since the Civil Rights Act of 1965. The biggest change in my lifetime electoral laws. And the idea that somebody would be suspicious of the outcome is not irrational. I myself am very grateful for our electoral college because the electoral college, when they voted, settled the question of who the next president of the United States was going to be. We didn't have to litigate uh, Georgia or Arizona at that point. It was a, it was a done deal. And, and so I accept Joe Biden. So he's our constitutional president. Uh, and, but I'm not going to be frog marched into the position where I have to say that the election, that somehow it's unreasonable or it's demonstrably false, as the newspapers insist on over and over and over again. And this affects ordinary people. They know that they're being constantly bombarded with propaganda from the media uh, to, to get them in line so that they'll behave. And meanwhile, they watch people marching in the streets, uh, looting, rioting. And they wonder, well, wait a minute, how come, you know, no, you know, I'm supposed to be sort of kosher with respect to, uh, you know, the rules of the game where the other side doesn't play by the rules. So I think we're in an explosive situation. I don't see Trump as a person that can lead us out of it. 
But I do think he has performed an important political function of ensuring that those people are represented and heard. Um, and I think it's up to the next generation of Republican leaders to figure out how to, how to, how to, to take that sense of betrayal and use it in order to try to put the country into a better place. All right, so this is super, super interesting, uh, but we desperately need to take a quick break. So this is uh, The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Michael, we're gonna kick it to you on the other side. Hope you stay tuned. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So, uh, Michael, obviously we'd love to have you respond to uh, what Rusty said. There's a lot to unpack there. I, I guess I would throw it to you kind of with the following, though. Um, certainly from my perspective, um, I, I, I make no attempt to necessarily uh, defend the allegation of a quote-unquote stolen election, but I'm, of course, deeply sympathetic to a lot of what Rusty is saying insofar as there is a feeling among many of us that the proverbial ruling class in this country, not to proverbial, the literal ruling class, um, you know, whether it's kind of uh, in the government, whether it's in big tech, Hollywood, et cetera, really did go above and beyond um, to put its thumb on the scale in favor of Joe Biden. What's, you know, there's specific citations such as, of course, the New York Post Hunter Biden files, where, you know, with the New York Post being locked out of its own Twitter account for over two weeks, the nation's fourth largest newspaper, for goodness sake. Um, I, I'd be curious if you're sympathetic to, to any of that, any of that kind of palpable sense of frustration and anger on behalf of the so-called deplorables that uh, their man was just simply not given a fair shake. He, he's president of the United States. He commanded in both the first campaign and in the second campaign multiples of media attention compared to what uh, either Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden received. And there's a very simple reason for it. It's not conspiratorial. Uh, people broadcast Trump's rallies because they were bizarre. They were a show. Uh, they were unpredictable and wild and strange and different and full of all kinds of uh, uh, peculiarities. And uh, 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 sitting and listening to Hillary Clinton deliver a stump speech or, or Joe Biden it just does not offer the same excitement and won't offer the same viewership. And I, uh, the idea that, that Trump was somehow undone by a Washington elite I think is is ludicrous. And uh, he began the stuff about the steal, about the election uh, being fraudulent. And this is one of those things that, by the way, the media uh, grossly undercovered. After the first election, after 2016, he claimed that he had also won the popular vote. Do you remember this? He had lost the popular vote by over three million but he claimed that that was because of illegal voters, uh, uh, undocumented aliens who voted in California. So he appointed an electoral commission. Mike Pence was the formal chairman of it, but the actual leader of it was Chris Kobach, the former secretary of state of Kansas. And they spent 18 months and a great deal of money. I believe the final total was about $20 million trying to investigate, to look for evidence of this fraud for his missing three million votes so he could say that he won the popular vote. And there was no evidence, there was none. They, they, they found at most one of the, the that there may have been uh, several thousand, perhaps 3,000 illegitimate voters that they could identify. and. This is not a question of media and people trying to undermine President Trump. I am grateful that leading publications, by the way, including the Wall Street Journal, 
uh, take the position that when they talk about President Trump's claims about a stolen election and about the voting machines, the voting machines being fraudulent, I mean, we'll see about how those lawsuits work out for Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and the rest of them. But the, the idea that any of this should be treated with respect because it appeals to uh, people's deepest fears and insecurities. Uh, we, according to polling recently, about a fourth of Americans believe in QAnon. They, they agree with the stipulation that our government and our society are run by a group of uh, Satan-worshipping pedophiles. And uh, I'm sorry, at, at one point or another, uh, the, <laughs> the truth and responsibility matter. And, and again, for so many of uh, President Trump and his allies, uh, they seem to be utterly irrelevant. Uh, the, the other thing that I would like to bring up is that the, the one reason I even hate having this conversation, and I kind of do, and <laughs> as much as I enjoy talking to uh, Josh and to, uh, to RR, it, it, the problem is much of our politics has become uh, what people used to call the politics of personal destruction, trying to find out who you can indict and what you can indict him or her for. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, that uh, again, and, and this is one of the reasons that I think it's so crucial for the Republican Party to move beyond Trump and as much as possible to ignore him, because he's going to have all kinds of legal adventures coming up. And uh, if you look at the time he spent talking about China or talking about trade or talking about NATO, or talking about Afghan policy, or talking about anything of substance, compared to the amount of time he talked about the Russia hoax, and uh, the time that he talked about the election fraudulence, uh, and basically trying to deal with the, the various efforts to undermine him personally, and then the counter efforts to undermine his own critics, uh, there was a piece in the New York Times by Tim Egan, who I think is, is a, a very fine writer, um, about how American politics has become incredibly mean. And it's not just on the Trump side. It's across the board where the, the level of accusation and suspicion is so much worse than it was. You think what, what Clinton got impeached for compared to the whole array of charges and counter charges we have now, it's uh, not a, a good projection. It's not a good trajectory to measure. So, Michael, when you say moving beyond Trump, though, I mean, aren't you essentially saying moving beyond Trump's voters, which is essentially saying moving beyond what a big portion of Republican voters are actually looking for? And I'll, I'll just ask one more time at the risk of being extremely annoying, because that's sometimes the, the role of a journalist why do you no, think he you. has so much support? Why are they voting for him if it's not for China? And like you said, it's, you've written it's not because they're racist. Where does that support come from? And aren't you essentially advocating to sort of, in a way, lightly disenfranchise those voters who he has spoken to? I do think that a lot of it comes from belief in conspiracy theories, and including the conspiracy theory that uh, this global Davos elite and, and I know there's some people who take it very seriously that the global, global Davos elite have 
um, reoriented the world economy uh, in in order to grind people into dust. I I, I don't believe that's true. Uh, I actually believe that if you look around the world right now, and by the way, I would include Naftali Bennett, who who I know a little bit and uh, I, I have great respect for. But uh, if you look around the world right now, Macron and, and, and Merkel and even Boris Johnson, uh, Justin Trudeau, it's harder to make a case for. But the idea that, that what we're talking about here are card-carrying elitists who have no other desire other than to manufacture more billions uh, for the Bill Gateses and Jeff Bezoses of this world and other Seattleites, right? That uh, <laughs> the idea that this massive conspiracy uh, exists to to make life worse for ordinary, hardworking, patriotic Americans. Uh, first of all, what what's fascinating is that if you actually look at both numbers of how people are doing. And until very recently, and the opioid thing is, is, is a complete disaster and obviously involves a great deal of corporate malfeasance. But the, the notion that, that we have experienced over the last 20 years, say, American carnage, uh, that we haven't made progress in a range of areas. And, and by the way, one of the other interesting things is look at the way that people look at American education and their own children's schools. Most parents like where they are sending their kids to, chill, to school. They like their own doctors. And when they're asked to look at the world at large, and I think this is partially because of the way we play politics and the way media covers malfunction rather than things that are working reasonably well, there's never any, uh, any coverage of a plane that lands safely and on time. I mean, I want to uh, push back on, on Michael's point that things are, are it's not American carnage. Uh, the, the data is really crystal clear that 30-year-olds have far less net worth than people of my generation had at age 30. Um, it's also, the data is now clear that they're less likely to have sex than I was at age 30, my generation. And so you have two key areas, one economic, which is, do you have a nest egg? And the answer is no. And the second key area of society is the male-female dance. And that is really broken. You cannot have a functional society if men and women cannot get together and live in relative harmony. And you can't have a functional middle-class society unless people um, are, are, are living on more than uh, their credit card debt. And, and I think the data is very, very strong here. And I would say also that QAnon, people gravitate towards conspiracy theories when things are not working well and the official narrative no longer makes sense. And uh, a QAnon is obviously a phenomenon on, on the right, but white privilege is a phenomenon on the left. Uh, I mean, that's a conspiracy theory, white privilege. It's an absurd conspiracy theory if you go to you know, poor white areas of the United States. It's a mockery of what they actually experience in life to talk about their white privilege. When we're really talking about white privilege, what we're really talking about is rich privilege. And people like me are privileged. You know, I'm very well educated. Um, 
you know, I very well compensated and I inherited from my parents a very excellent work ethic. And, you know, that's, that's a great source of privilege. And so I think you've got on both sides of the aisle, you have a significant portion of the population that's gravitating towards conspiracy theories because our leadership class is not actually providing them with, with a very plausible account of why things are not working out the way that they were, it was promised. So, Rusty, let me stick with you then and follow up directly on that point and try to re- redirect the conversation back to the original topic, so to speak. So, you know, we're, we're talking here, I, I completely agree with you for what it's worth, um, that white privilege is, is a misnomer. Anyone who has ever spent any time whatsoever in Kentucky and West Virginia ought to intuit that immediately. But, uh, you know, a, a Republican Party and a conservative movement that wants to actually reach out to those voters, um, you know, uh, who it's kind of this proverbial kind of Trumpism without Trump. Right. And I think you and I and a lot of us are trying to kind of build this kind of infrastructure. And it's, it's, it's sometimes sobering, of course, to, you know, to hear, you know, our friends like Michael who say that this uh, this project is kind of uh, it's not possible. It's dead in its tracks uh, as long as Trump is still in, in the discussion. But just talk a little bit more about kind of some of the, the the concrete policies, the rhetoric, the kind of going in there in Eastern Kentucky, West Virginia. Some of what you, some of what the nuts and bolts that you would actually like to see a GOP do more in the ensuing five, ten, fifteen years or so. Faith, flag, and family. Faith, flag, Very and family. family. Yep, basically, uh, family. I think we have to have uh, uh, strong family policies, and we shouldn't be afraid of spending money. Uh, to, uh, to, to, to provide support to families. We're basically in a competition now with the Democrats. Uh, Democrats want universal uh, uh, preschool for everybody, childcare for everybody. So it's the institutionalization of children at an early age. And we should be opposed to institutionalization of children. And we should try to provide as much choice as possible for uh, parents to take care of their own children in the way that they think is best for, for their lives. Um, and then flag. Uh, for most Americans, uh, the most if your net worth is zero, as it is the case for 50% of Americans, then the most precious thing you have is your American citizenship. And I, I think that the Democratic Party has become the university party. The university is very ambivalent about the nation and about patriotism. And I think that uh, this is not just electorally a good thing to emphasize patriotism, but I think it's, it's good for the country because we need to unify with what we all share. And we all share uh, a love of our country. We all share a common citizenship. And so I think this is one reason why Trump made inroads in Hispanic and black voters is because uh, you know the overwhelming majority of anybody, I mean, I've been to fora where people talk about how we're a nation of immigrants, which I object and say, no, no. The super majority of people living here were born here. We're a nation of Americans, not a nation of immigrants. And I know what they're trying to say, but it's just this kind of rhetoric, I think, needs to be replaced on the right by a rhetoric of affirmation of what, who we are um, as a people. And then faith, just broadly, uh, uh, what I would think is a, a kind of moral emphasis on the moral reconstitution of the country. Uh, as I like to say, we need to make normal normal again. So, Michael, what, part of that is opposing extremes on the left that want to make the most abnormal people models for the rest of society. So, Michael, I mean, you know, faith, family, flag, you know, I think a lot of Republican voters hear that and say, like, that's kind of common sense and logical. You know, I'm sure if you kind of dig beneath the surface, there are some specific things you might object to. But, 
kind of trying to stick as much as possible with, you know, policy in the future direction of the party, uh, less so in kind of the 2020 election and fraud and all of that. Um, what did Rusty say that you ob- object to, if anything, frankly? Well, what I object to is is basically saying that faith, family, and flag can become divisive issues or should become divisive issues. There are extremes on the Democratic Party that need to be resisted. And by the way, they need to be resisted from within the Democratic Party the same way that we have an obligation to resist some of the extremes within our party. But uh, it's very tough to see what are the reliable policy focuses that you can use to um, uh, to promote the idea of faith, family, and flag. And I want to push back again on this whole issue of American carnage, is that, look, I, I, um, I did a book uh, called uh, uh, The Ten Big Lies About America in 2009. And uh, one of the big lies about America is this big lie about the disappearing American middle class and the idea that life and life expectancy. Now, life expectancy recently, there have been three years in a row where the life expectancy for uh, white middle aged males has gone down. And it's largely because of suicide, depression, uh, and and all kinds of and and of course drug addiction and fentanyl has been a big factor, but if you look at most measures, uh, Rusty emphasizes that over half of Americans have a net worth of zero. We still have over sixty percent of Americans still live in a home that is owned by a member of that family, uh, or by that family collectively. And we do very well compared to other nations of the world in terms of home ownership. Uh, And my biggest problem with what Rusty was saying was that if there is one segment of the electorate that is growing most dramatically, I've written about, I've written for Newsweek about um, the the myth of uh, the idea that we're going to be a minority majority nation. We won't. And that whole mistake is based upon assuming uh, that anyone of Latino background considers himself non-white when the overwhelming majority of people of Latino background, of the 17% who are classified that way, do consider themselves white and put that on the census form. And it, the, the, uh, that whole idea is a, a fallacy. However, what one group that we have that is growing and growing and very dramatically and within each ethnic group is college graduates. And you can hit the university all you want, but the reason that uh, the uh, that Colorado, for instance, and Virginia, that used to be swing states, have become reliably, overwhelmingly democratic states, is because of the failure of the GOP to connect with college graduates. And, and people who have now realized what at one time was an American dream to get a college degree. And, and by the way, I think that it's, it's ironic that right now, if there's any political credit for this idea of free um, a community college for people, it's ironic because that was started by Bill Haslam, a Republican in Tennessee, and has, I think, as far as I can gather, worked out fairly well in Tennessee. 
And that idea of uh, the Republicans becoming the anti-college party at a time when the overwhelming majority of Americans, and the numbers are staggeringly overwhelming, want their children to go to college. Uh, I think that is a, a, a mistake that could mean the death of the party. Yeah, I disagree here. Uh, you know, Warren Cass has looked at the, I mean, obviously less than 10% of Americans have a college degree, but that's because older people went to college at a much lower rate. So if we look at the millennial cohort, something like 28% complete a four-year degree, but only 18% of them have jobs that require a college degree. So let's just call it 20% of the population is what I call the university class. And I think it's fatal for the future of our country to organize our society solely around their interests. And so to Michael's point, I do support free community college. I think that's, because that is not, for most people who go to community college, they're not doing degrees that we would consider university in, in the four-year degree sense. Uh, they're doing vocational training in technical areas that require uh, training. I think it's a very good idea. In fact, I proposed after President Obama proposed free community college nationally, I proposed a endowment tax on supersized endowments. And if you, uh, just a back of the envelope, if you took the top 25 endowments and taxed them at a 1% to 5% rate on their principal, you could fund 10 years of free community college uh, for, for, all, for, for the Obama plan. And I think we have way over-subsidized uh, uh, elite and four-year four universities, uh, which only serve the top 10 to 20% of the country. And we have grotesquely underfunded the needs of a median American who needs uh, pathways to decent jobs. Many of those pathways require training and community college can be an excellent way to deliver that kind of training. So Rusty, I'm hearing free college, taxing the rich, free, free, free community, community college, college, taxing the rich. I also want to read a quote from a piece you wrote for us taxing in Newsweek. Rich universities. Rich universities. Um, you wrote in Newsweek, as currently configured, our economy is great for those in the upper 20% and increasingly lousy for the rest. After the 2008 financial crisis, investors ended up even richer. The same trend is unfolding during the COVID crisis. The growing gap between winners and losers has become the preeminent problem afflicting our country. Now, Rusty, as a lefty, I could not agree with you more, but um, there, there does not seem to be a lot of support for this in the Republican Party. But this really jives with someone like Bernie Sanders. So I'm wondering, you know, to what extent... There is a realignment happening, not within the, 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 the GOP, but whether you see a sort of bipartisan cross-party uh, uh, potential here. No, because I think the Democratic Party is the billionaire's party. They break 90-10 for billionaires. Billionaires break 90-10 Democrat. Um, and the Wall Street went 80-20 funding for Biden. Uh, so I think that you're getting a realignment. I think that the Democratic Party is really hamstrung because it's the party of the rich. Obama was the first Democrat to win the majority of votes from people who make more than $200,000 a year in 08. And that trend has only continued. Um, so I think the uh, Democratic Party is going to be in a hard, in a tough mind. For instance, I think we should cap lifetime charitable contributions at a half a billion dollars because I think it's going to be very bad for our political culture when all the Silicon Valley wealth pours into private foundations and we'll have governance 
by private foundations and not governance by elected officials, which is basically what you have in Africa, uh, small countries in Africa now, the Gates Foundation controls public health policy, not elected officials. Um, and I've been on shows where people say, well, isn't that better for the people who live in that country? And my view is, at some point, you know, people want to actually run their own lives and not have their lives run by, you know, technocrats who are selected by um, a tiny cabal of super rich people. And, and I think we're at risk in the same thing. So I think you and I, Atya, are on the same page with respect to um, some, some features. Now, I'm a free market guy, so I don't want to suppress incentives to be a productive entrepreneur, but I think uh, a limit on the capital, on the charitable contribution gift at half a billion dollars, we're only talking, but these people control a huge sum of money, vast concentration of wealth now in a tiny number of hands. And I think that needs to be addressed. And, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to uh, having increased uh, taxes for super wealthy people. Um, either. Uh, and in general, I think we just need to pivot away from this creative class talk, entrepreneurs. I remember the 2012 Republican convention, the, the video presentation was, you know, he didn't build that. So that was uh, a counter campaign. Uh, I guess what Obama said, where the entrepreneur gathers all his workers and says, I built that. And I'm thinking, no, he didn't. The whole team built it. Why isn't the Republican Party saying we? So that's the great word that needs to be restored to American political life, which is the word we. And I think one of the things Trump is very good at is he blames elite people. He does not blame ordinary people. And I think you're going to find on the left an increasing hostility to ordinary people. They're racist, they're plurables, they won't work, they're drug addicted. You got to import people. Uh, from abroad because American-born people don't want to do the hard work, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at our political rhetoric from uh, elite people, it's actually, they would like to find, you know, they, they're much too good for the American people. And they wish that the country weren't so shitty. Um, and they could, you know, get a new population that would be up to their high standards. I passionately disagree with almost everything that R.R. just laid out. And the idea that you should put a limit on charitable donations, uh, the, the Republican Party grew up not as the party of rich people, but of the party of people who wanted to get rich, of the par people who wanted to work hard and accumulate wealth. And basically, one of the things that has come out of the pandemic that actually may benefit the country long term is people saving and uh, doing less of spending and more of saving and more of planning for the future. And the notion that you should put a limit on charitable contributions, how would you do that? I mean, in other words, to, to say that you cannot establish a charitable foundation, if you look at the things that, that basically a charitable giving has done in the United States, there isn't a community in the United States that doesn't have a Carnegie Library that were established as libraries by Andrew Carnegie with his charitable accumulation. And let me say a, a word here for our current, quote, elites. I, I know Bill Gates has been getting all kinds of bad publicity, and who knows, he may even have had some contact with Jeffrey Epstein. But the truth of the matter is that what that foundation, which is down the street 
from where I live, uh, has done for the world, for combating disease, for promoting education. Uh, Bill Gates put about $300 million into programs that have actually been fairly successful to improve public schools in the state of Washington. And, uh, and, and by the way, buying uh, parkland, and, uh, and, and which by the way is, Bach, is one of the issues in which I would uh, also count myself as aligned with the left. I think that one of the most shameful things, of all the things I hated about what Trump did, one of the most shameful was uh, violating the Monuments Act of 1904 by uh, single-handedly, by his own will, uh, taking away parkland that had been established by President uh, Bush, President Clinton, and President Obama before him, like Mount Katahdin is something I care about, where that uh, the there had been a hundred thousand acres that had been donated by Burt's Bees, and and you could say, well, yeah, he's speaking up for the elites uh, against the elites for ordinary people. Ordinary people go hiking too. Ordinary people also appreciate fresh air. I remember my grandfather, who was an immigrant and uh, was a barrel maker, uh, used to uh, go every week. My dad would take him to Lee Island Park in South Philadelphia. And it was a mahaya. It was, it was something that was pleasurable for him. And this notion that, um, that, uh, um, that Republicans should pick up the the worst aspects of populism, I, I would challenge RR, who is the most successful, admirable populist in American history? Because there aren't any. Franklin Roosevelt. And Franklin <laughs> Roosevelt was hardly a populist. Oh yeah, you read his speeches from the 1930s, they make Trump look like a piker. He really no, demonized, I his speeches. He, I he demonized his, his opponents. He was a uh, he was quite, and he, he threatened. He threatened that if, if he didn't get his way, that he would take this. He would take these matters to the people. Uh, he was a great populist. The court pack. A very okay. effective uh, one. Uh, well, and, <laughs> in fact, I've written I, that we need. I've written that what we need is we need a conservative FDR to, to uh, whom I don't think Trump is, by the way, who can combine uh, a recognition of the need to. Um, the populists need to tap into people's anger and frustration, but to direct it towards actually solving the problems of our country and leading us into a, a better era that I think all of us want. Okay, on that I agree with you, but what, what are those areas in which you believe that Donald J. Trump, in his four years as president, two of which he had a Republican House and a Republican Senate, what are those areas in which he improved the life for an ordinary American? Well, he, he began the process of uh, repatriation of business from China to the United States, which is ongoing. And we'll see how much of a difference that makes. Uh, he also, I think, quite frankly, um, a lot of people were dispirited that they weren't represented and weren't heard. And he's uh, one should never underestimate the importance of emotions and in uh, civic life. And people can be very dispirited and they can raise their spirits even if even if the actual outcomes take a long time to come to them. So we're, we're running really low on time. This is just such a great conversation and I hate to jump in like this, but I, I have a question I really want to ask and then Josh has a final question and then we'll wrap it up. 
So um, to me, it seems very clear that uh, the future of the GOP must necessarily involve uh, attracting more minority voters, which we saw from Trump actually does seem to be happening. But but one um, minority population that the Republican Party has truly failed to attract, even really uh, this time around, has been black voters. And I'm wondering if you could each speak to why you think that is, why black voters have been so tightly connected to the Republican, to the Democratic Party, have so soundly rejected the Republican Party, and what you think the future of the conservative movement in America can be doing to better speak to these people, many of whom have conservative values. Let's start with you, Michael. It's a great question. And uh, look, I think that President Trump uh, and and I know that uh, RR isn't going to like this, but it's true. He cooked himself with black voters partially because of his handling and then the media handling, which was very hostile, of Charlottesville. Uh, you you, you can, and and then consistently not not being able to deal with distancing himself when he's asked about David Duke. That there is a general sense that they were able to tar President. Trump, and I think in this regard somewhat unfairly, with association with the most racist and and retrograde aspects of American life. And, and look, in terms of why you can't, uh, what, what the Republican Party can do for the future, I think Eric Adams. Uh, I, I do think that most black people are, are not uh, taking the position of the squad. And polling shows that. And the results in New York show that the the idea of defunding the police is a disaster for Democrats. And uh, it's one of the reasons that um, I actually believe that if Biden had selected Val Demings as his running mate rather than Kamala Harris, the election would have been more decisive than it than it was. And uh, I think appealing to people who are again, uh, part of the traditional Republican Party base, which is people who are ascendant. Uh, this, this is the real question before us, Batya, it seems to me. Are we going to try to build a coalition of the aggrieved or a coalition of the ascendant? And I think the only future of the Republican Party is to go back to our origins, which is to build that coalition of the ascendant without the constant sense of we have been gypped, we have been horrified. And by the way, I completely disagree with the characterization of Franklin Roosevelt as a populist. Uh, and, uh, and, and again, and partially uh, because he surrounded himself with elitists of every kind in every major cabinet position, all of his prominent advisors, and the people who were closest to him including uh, his, the one vice president that he, he chose, which was Henry Wallace, you're, you're talking about people who, uh, uh, who were, were great favorites of uh, the elite and had very good relationships with, uh, with major forces in business life, as FDR did, which, by the way, allowed him to win history's greatest war. Rusty. I just don't think Republicans should accept this slicing and dicing of the population up into identity groups. You know, you run, you run on what you think the country needs. You talk about your things that you think are important, and some people vote for you, and other people don't vote for you. 
And it could be that black Americans are, the, are like Jews, and they just are determined to be staunch members of the Democratic Party, no matter what the Democratic Party says and does. And um, if that's the case, well then, all right. It's, uh, it's a free country, you can vote for who you wanna vote for. But I think a fixation uh, on, on race is destructive in our society. And um, you know, people will come to you or not, so, I, I, in other words, I don't want to answer that question because I don't think it's actually an important question for right, the so future that, of, for the future of American politics. So, in that case, let's um, let's sign off here on one final question that I think can and probably should be answered in yes/no fashion, both for purposes of time and because I think it is kind of a straight up or down proposition. Uh, but understood if it has to be slightly more than one word. So, you know, the, the modern conservative movement in America, you know, uh, going back to kind of the founding of National Review and William F. Buckley in the 1950s, um, you know, the term that, that that's uh, in the discourse, of course, referred to this is fusionism. It's the fusion, of course, of kind of traditional moral conservatism with uh, kind of uh, economic free market libertarianism during the Reagan presidency. It emerged as the kind of the so-called three-legged stool with kind of anti-Soviet, anti-communist uh, hawkishness is kind of the third leg of that stool. I think the big discussion on the right these days is whether that is dead or whether that framework or that paradigm is still viable. Um, so I guess the, the very straightforward question is, um, is that fusionism uh, is kind of late 20th century conservatism as it was formulated over the course of decades. Is that the future of the Republican Party? Or, you know, Rusty, to borrow from that, uh, you know, famous manifesto that your publication published in March 2019, is that simply a, quote, dead consensus at this point? So, uh, Michael, let's start with you. I don't think it's a dead consensus, but it can't be uh, replicated in detail because the issues are different. I mean, the the issue of a uh, civilization-threatening Soviet Union evil empire uh, is no longer is no longer the the reigning issue. The issue now more is uh, the the danger of China, and uh, can. Can a general fusion of conservative interests? It it must. There will be no no future for the party unless it does. And uh, the the idea of building a party uh, on grievance, uh, on resentment, on negativity, this betrays the party of Abraham Lincoln and of Theodore Roosevelt and of Ronald Reagan. One of the crucial elements that uh, I, I I think that. Trump and Trumpism lacks is optimism, confidence, and that aspect of flag waving, which uh, Rusty referred to, the uh, the aspect that uh, America can and will succeed and remains despite our challenges, uh, the the best country anywhere. Rusty, I share Michael's optimism about the future of our country, uh, and I, I I believe that something like fusionism will be reestablished or reconfigured. It says that the original fusionism was oriented towards defending freedom and the new fusionism has to be oriented towards restoring solidarity and reunifying the interests of America's elite with the interests of America's uh, working and middle class. All right. Well, I think that's a 
perfect spot to to conclude this uh, robust and, and certainly enjoyable exchange show. Rusty Reno and Michael Medved, thank you both just so, so much for spending uh, your time with us on this debate and Newsweek podcast. We just couldn't be happier to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Bacha. So we hope you, the listener, just enjoyed that thrilling, I thought personally, at least, conversation between Rusty Reno of, uh, of First Things Magazine and Michael Medved, nationally syndicated radio host. We will see you next time. This is The Debate, a podcast by Newsweek. See you next time.